Good day, everybody. Welcome to a time of new beginnings, new year, new episode, and best of all, a new show. Welcome to the pilot episode of Manufacturing Think Tank with Cliff Waldman. Why did we do this? Why did we, why are we creating a new show? I'm going into my, I'm starting my fifth year with Manufacturing Talk Radio. Four years that I've been uh, with talk radio have been quite a, an adventure for me. And we can divide it into two parts because history has done that. At the beginning with Manufacturing Matters, I was exploring the broad themes of manufacturing. Manufacturing is a very theme-driven sector. It evolves around structural changes that takes a lot of time, but are nonetheless very powerful. And we're looking at that. Globalization, digitization, workforce change, changes in key parts of the world, China and in Europe, and we looked at that. But then starting around 20, at the beginning of 2020, the world got hit with a series of crises that are gonna be studied for generations and that affected our business life on a week to week basis. So that, that gave rise to Cliff Notes. I had to keep you posted almost weekly what was going on in order to help you make critical business decisions at a very, very difficult time. Crises are not, have not abated. It'd be foolish to think that they have, and we will stay on top of developments, certainly. But fortunately, the pandemic is much more under control than it's been. And while inflation, you know, picture is still is nowhere near what it should be, we're at least peaking and then seeing some control in the um, inflation picture. So the think tank is meant, meant to sort of be a combination of the two, of uh, manufacturing matters and cliff notes whether it's something that affects you next week or 10 years from now, we'll explore it. And we're gonna do it in a, um, a calm kind of think tank matter. We'll, we'll explore it deep, we'll explore it wide and we'll have the best guests on uh, to do that. One thing that has not abated any, in any way in, in terms of an emergency as we start this new year is the disastrous war in Ukraine. And one of the many elements of that has been um, an energy threat to Europe with big um, implications for European industry and thus for global um, industry. We have the guest to, uh, to talk to you about that. Manufacturing Talk Radio listeners and viewers now will remember that Mike Ryan was on my show uh, a number of years ago. He's an economics director on the Industry Insights team of S&P Global. He partners with a wide range of leaders in business, finance, government. He's the type of person that professionals get to, get to know and start depending on, start leaning on. He manages the company's sector risk service used by financial clients as an early warning radar. And I know that, uh, you know, it, it's always been said that economists more and more need something like that. And I, I think his, his radar system is gets a worldwide attention for the type of thing that um, we would like to have more and more in this era of uh, change that could be next week or 10 years from now. Prior to S&P, he worked, he started his career with PricewaterhouseCoopers Advisory, um, looking at, uh, you know, various elements of the financial crisis. That's, you know, quite a way uh, to start his career. 
Uh, I got to know Mike uh, when he um, became president of the National Economist Club, a, a professional group in, um, in Washington, D.C., over 500 economics and policy uh, professionals. I had the fun of working uh, with NEC when Mike uh, was president, and I've, I've stayed uh, very active in NEC. He's based in Scottsdale, Arizona. I don't think it ever gets below 80 degrees there. Mike, welcome to, back to the uh, network and welcome to the new show. Hey, Cliff, I'm glad to be here and help you kick off a new era. So this is really great, thanks. Thanks for joining us. Complicated story, terrible story. Uh, any aspect of this Ukraine invasion is a terrible story, but let's begin with the, uh, the macroeconomic environment in Europe. Let's ask the basic question that is being asked about every part of the world. And you, you work for S&P Global. It's one of the powerhouse economics things, tanks and economic forecasting firms in this world. So is the European economy in a technical recession right now or, or not? Well, I think we exited 2022 with a lot of question marks about where things were going to go. Uh, so I guess maybe I'll start answering your question in a little bit of an indirect fashion, right? And kind of zoom out to more of a global perspective and really dive into what's going on in Europe. And, uh, you know, certainly I think a lot of the signs that we've seen in recent weeks give us uh, cautious optimism for the year ahead, right? So we've seen kind of a Chinese reopening that has been more abrupt, right? So that's in turn going to help China, uh, European exports. Right. We've also seen American data in terms of a, a tempering inflation and relatively robust employment figures. And so, you know, equities have rallied and consumer sentiment is up and all that has been quite beneficial for markets. Um, also within Europe, we've had a very unseasonably warm winter. It hasn't nearly been nearly as bad as, as thought. Uh, and there is the chance that we're probably gonna, we could escape the technical recession in terms of back to back uh, you know, quarters of contraction. So uh, if I could just kind of point to our recent purchasing managers indices data, the PMI, for those of you who aren't necessarily familiar with PMI, it is a proprietary uh, data set that S&P Global Market Intelligence produces. It's based off survey data from thousands of companies, which we collate into country and sector aggregates. Uh, it's widely used by corporate strategists and by asset managers as a leading indicator as to where things are going. And for the first time in six months, European PMI, uh, Eurozone uh, headline PMI just posted an expansion figure. So this is, uh, this is quite uh, nice in terms of, it kind of coincides with this, this cresting of the inflation narrative, uh, and then in terms of what that means for overall consumer spending and sentiment. So these are things that we're quite, you know, um, I should say more optimistic about, uh, but it's not without our challenges, right? I mean, we're not necessarily out of the winter season yet, as you noted. The war in Ukraine is certainly intensifying in terms of Russia calling up hundreds of thousands of troops and throwing them in the fight. Meanwhile, you've got some of the Western nations throwing in uh, a lot more heavy equipment, right? So 2023 is certainly going to spell uh, for a lot of kind of exciting events in the year ahead. But so far, I think, you know, things are, are generally looking up in Europe, if I had to kind of summarize it that way. Oh, along those lines, can you share S&P's global's um, GDP forecast for European growth for, for let's say it's for 20, 2023, for this year and 2024? And then, and then tell us, beyond the forecast itself, do you think there's more upside risks or downside risks for the European outlook? Yeah, so our Eurozone outlook it can, uh, is going to grow about 0.2% about this year and north of 1.5% next year for, for 24. 
Uh, UK contraction will be about 0.8% this year. So UK certainly got it a little bit worse. Uh, right now, inflation is still very much the dominant concern, right? And the good news is that headline inflation is, is coming down, but core inflation is actually still trending up. And uh, so that, that's kind of the, the primary issue. So inflation has kind of based itself in the services and wages, and that's where inflation is in terms of that core aspect of stuff. Now, in terms of just aggregate inflation, right, that does include food and energy costs. And that's coming down just because uh, gas prices have come down uh, so tremendously, right? So if we look at uh, Dutch TTF futures month ahead prices, that's come down by about a factor of five since it crested in, in August of last year. So, but they're, they're still, European gas prices are still about probably, you know, four times what they were pre-crisis. It depends on the period that you want to measure it against, uh, but it's certainly still elevated. And that in turn is, is kind of weighing on consumer uh, uh, ability to spend. And food prices are really uh, the, the million dollar issue in terms of they continue to go up. So food is, is certainly an issue. And a lot of that then dovetails with what we've seen in terms of European gas prices have gone up so, so high that ammonia and nitrogen production has gone down tremendously. So all those are just necessary fertilizer for food production. And I think it's going to take a little bit of time for this, this kind of food crisis to abate. Uh, then on top of that, you've got uh, sanctions on Belarusian wheat exports. And then you've got uh, kind of the, the situation in terms of it's been still a little bit slow to get wheat out of Ukraine as well. And so Russia has certainly been bombarding your uh, Ukrainian gas infrastructure. But then the question is, in, in terms of, you know, will there be kind of an emphasis and targeting or, or kind of a restrictions around, um, you know, infrastructure to allow Ukraine to export crops to the global market? Um, so that, I, you know, will that kind of change as we get into the summer? I think that's a little bit of an open question. So that will be interesting to see, right? Because right now, uh, Russia is targeting that energy infrastructure just because it's the winter season, it's kind of meant to demoralize. But, you know, all of a sudden we're going to get into the spring and summer and, you know, that heating is not necessarily a concern. So just that kind of the emphasis of Russian targeting change in, in the month ahead, that will be interesting to see. You know, one of the sort of interesting, what uh, notable aspects of this story right now, at least right this minute, is that anytime we talk about weather lately, justifiably, it sends a chill up everybody's mind because every weather event has been an absolute uh, tragedy and mess what uh, you know pick your um you know subjects but th th there's a little bit of a different twist here you write in your very intriguing report you write that russia's throttling of nat natural gas via the Nord Stream pipeline has put the european union on a quote de facto wartime footing and it's those last words that sort of you know caught my attention now the thing is they so far I and mean, you never know when this is going to change but so far they Europe has had an unusually mild winter. Um, is, is the wartime footing kind of off for now, or you know what? Tell me about the intersection of a uh, of unusually warm uh, weather and something that could have been uh, you know much worse. Well, in terms of wartime footing, I, you know it's certainly echoed by recent comments by German Foreign Minister uh, Annalena Baerbock, where just a few right. days ago she talked about the Western allies being in a in a war with Russia. So I think that um, those were pretty astounding comments, and you know some other European politicians have pushed back against that. But there is a sentiment in a large part of Europe in terms of uh, coming together to just in order to. Uh, 
with regards to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and, and wanting to stand in the unified sense. So I think that that part is very much agreed upon. Um, so in terms of what this all overall means, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out in 23. But in terms of uh, how European state support has mobilized in terms of uh, to, to come together uh, to support industry and households is really exceptional. So this is not really anything that we've really seen in the post-World War II era. And European governments have had to come through with enormous state support. So if we look at Germany or UK, that their collective packages and stabilization uh, mechanisms amount to about more than 6% of GDP each. And then it, it certainly, uh, they would probably be amongst some of the higher spenders in Europe in terms of their, their subsidies. Uh, but this is, it's really nothing short of tremendous action that we've seen in terms of this, this uh, shift between natural gas towards other sources of, of uh, energy supply, and then also working with energy industry to, um, to basically cut back on demand. And then also in terms of households, in terms of uh, implementing some, some uh, restrictions there. So this is really kind of an exceptional period. And I have to say that just because in terms of pre-crisis, right, in terms of the before the war, Russian natural gas accounted for about, you know, 40% of European demand. Um, coal supply was about 50% of European demand. And then oil was about a quarter, right? So being able, having to replace that in such a rapid uh, fashion, it's just, it, it requires a very high level of state support. And so far, they're doing a great job. And the fact that, you know, we've had a warm winter is really helped to kind of gel this. But I will say that next year is going to be kind of the, the big question mark. Well, that's what I wanted to get to. I mean, it's a, so far, it's been somewhat of a relief this year. But in your writing, you express some fears about um, next winter, the winter of 23, 24. Could you, could you share that with us? Yes. So in terms of just being able to, to replace this huge amount of Russian energy, and I'm talking across the board, it, the gas, oil, and coal, you know, Europe has had to basically go out in the international markets, procure that, and then uh, that, that certainly required a certain rewiring of global uh, energy value chain, right? And then in terms of uh, Russian production, they're shifting that more over to China, and then whatever China was getting from international markets is then most of that is, is flowing into Europe. So in terms of this kind of, it's introduced this kind of bifurcation to global energy market, it's introduced certain frictions in the market, uh, which has increased inflation as a whole. But in terms of how Europe is, is going to handle this, what I think really right now, the, the big bottleneck is around regasification terminals. And that this will take several years to build out this infrastructure. Because right now, anything that Europe was getting by pipeline in, toward, in terms of Nord Stream, they now have to get by LNG vessel. And that requires uh, a whole new infrastructure, right? Now, there is enough LNG vessels at the moment and really the shortages are around the regasification terminals. And so Germany is hoping to roll out three in, in Q1 of this year and two more later this fall. Uh, Italy's building out one at the moment and uh, the Netherlands actually rolled out two at the end of 2022. But even that is not gonna be enough. I mean, this is gonna be a multi-year project. And for, further to that, um, you know, Europe had the advantage of importing Russian gas through the first half of this year, right? So Russia turned off the pipeline uh, August 31st, and then a few weeks after that, uh, Nord Stream blew up. So um, now there was Nord Stream 1 and 2, and they each had two strands each. And so three out of the four were, uh, strands were severed. 
And right now, you know, it could probably take several months to, to um, you know, to repair that if they really wanted to. But I think uh, even if the war ended tomorrow, let's just say theoretically there was a peace deal tomorrow. The thing is, is that it's going to be very difficult for uh, Europe to basically trust, you know, Russia in that regard. And even if Putin was out of power, it, it's going to be, you know, there's still long-term question marks about just the reliability of the issue. And, and there's always just kind of political uh, matters floating in the background. So there, there's very much been a severance there. And uh, European demand is, is really shifting towards those international markets, predominantly being, for example, the United States is certainly the, the lion's share of that, but also Norway as well, um, Algeria in terms of North Africa, Azerbaijan, and uh, a handful of other markets. I'm confident that right now our, our viewers and listeners are, are thinking supply chain. So uh, let me ask you a question along those lines. Can you tell us about the current risk to European heavy industry concentrated in the energy intensive areas? What are, what are, and what are the supply chain implications of these risks? Well, uh, in terms of it's, it's really affecting heavy industry that's more energy intensive. And while the, these industries may be lower on the value chain, they figure prominently as key inputs to higher value add services. So I, I think when we were at the end of 2022, you know, we were saying, look, I mean, these could be lower value add products, but if it results in supply chain backups, for example, for example, in European um, uh, heavy industry or industrial equipment or automotives, then we're going to get a very serious problem. But so far, right, in terms of energy costs have come down and things, you know, the, the worst fears have been abated, and that's great. But uh, the, the thing is, is that there's still concerns about these kind of lower value-add industries. And of that, I would include things like metals, glass, ceramics, fertilizers, um, uh, even recycling industry, things of this nature. So I think we're going to be watching this for some time to come. Uh, I don't think that the concerns are kind of over, uh, are kind of ended overnight. But this is certainly something that we're going to have to watch uh, ahead. Because the, the, I'll give you an example in terms of fertilizers, just to get back to that. You know, 70% of European ammonia production was basically just shuttered right away because gas prices became so high. Um, but once again, as, as gas prices have just very recently started to come down, I think some of that production will start to come back online. But then it becomes about what structural shifts we're going to see in the future. It, it caught my eye in, in your very interesting writing. It caught my eye that you list Germany as one of the countries that that's most at risk from the current European energy quagmire due to its energy exposure, Russian energy exposure, and manufacturing supply chain integration. Now, I don't have to tell our audience, I think anybody, that Germany has large, deep global um, tentacles, global supply chain links, global trade links. It's, it's a global powerhouse. So the, the conclusion that I sort of draw from that is that there's at least a risk of, of a very negative global contagion from the current European energy quagmire or standoff or whatever you want to call it. Is that correct? Am I correct in, in at least worrying about that as a risk? Well, that's kind of an interesting question. So uh, Germany's not necessarily the only one at risk. I mean, I think if there was five major markets that we should right. track, it would be, and I don't, you know, because we don't want to single out Germany here, but there would be, but just because their size, people talk about them a lot. But I, I think we should really keep in perspective the situation for Germany, Austria, Poland, and then Slovak Republic, Czech Republic as well. So I think that there's probably five main markets that we want to consistently keep an eye on 
and the, the months ahead. Uh, just be based off uh, kind of the intersection of their overall uh, manufacturing as a share of the economy and their reliance on Russian energy. So if we look at that kind of juxtaposition, these are kind of the places that we'd want to watch. And I, I would say, though, if you do look at certain trade association data coming out of Germany, that a lot of German businesses don't really see the, the, the impetus to necessarily diversify their global footprint. Um, they, they feel like they're pretty comfortable there. I, I think a lot of this has been abated by a lot of a high level of state support from Germany in terms of um, kind of subsidies towards uh, capping prices. And I, I think uh, just other kind of measures just to, to support industry. Um, but I think it does beg a question, right? If this energy crisis does go on, I think for, for some years to come, because once again, it's going to take time for this infrastructure build out to go on. But if this crisis does persist, I think it's going to cause very interesting questions for corporate strategists. For example, do they want to engage in new, uh, do they want to kind of diversify their global footprint about where they set up shop? Do they want to kind of transfer incremental production out of uh, kind of a European home base? Or do they want to engage in some sort of mergers or acquisitions or some sort of team enga engagements with foreign partners? So I think that would be something very interesting to look at. Um, and it's certainly something I'm going to be tracking. Final question for Mike Ryan. Climate change is going to overshadow a lot of our conversations here in the think tank. So I'm going to ask you, what does the present energy quagmire, energy standoff do to Europe's general concerns and policy actions with regard to climate change? Yeah, so I, I think there's a lot of uh, worry in Europe that they're behind the eight ball in terms of uh, their, their climate ambitions, right? So right. the fact that because of this, this crisis has hit so hard so fast is that all of a sudden we've had to reactivate a lot of uh, coal-fired uh, energy mm -hmm. and that has in turn increased their carbon emissions. Uh, and so they, they kind of want to get back to the, their pre-war uh, baseline trend and if anything, accelerate on top of that in terms of decarbonization strategy. And so right before Christmas, uh, there was this new agreement towards their emissions trading system. And they're, they're you know, in regards to their net zero 2050 ambitions. So what the, there's gonna be a more aggressive cap in terms of carbon. Uh, and then that's gonna basically in, increase the cost of carbon. And there's gonna be a phased introduction to this over, for example, 2024 to 2030. But uh, also a part of this that is, is quite pertinent for international enterprise is the fact that uh, there's this new, what's called carbon border adjustment mechanism, what's called CBAM uh, for short. And essentially this is gonna be a carbon import tax. Uh, and this is going to really affect a lot of international markets that aren't necessarily on a European style uh, standards for their, for their emissions and sustainability. And so it's going, their hope is that it's going to drag large swaths of the world economy towards European standards, just so Europe is going to leverage its buying power to get that effect. Uh, the thing is, though, um, you know, this is going to cause more some diplomatic confrontation, I think, with some of the bigger polluters, for example, mainland China, India, uh, Vietnam, you know, but it could also cause some confrontation with the United States as well. So while the United States has got its own climate ambitions uh, and we're moving on this in our own form and fashion, the fact is, is that we are not necessarily on kind of European standards. And so there's going to be a little bit of a tussle in terms of how this gets worked out. Now, I think it's also important to note that the U.S. has got its own approach, and that's really along the, the lines spelled out in the Inflation Reduction Act. 
right? I mean, it's called, you know, it's ostensibly about inflation reduction, but it's really a green energy package, right? And so there's about $370 billion worth of tax credits and subsidies that are going to help uh, businesses and households affect this, this energy transition. And uh, there's also a lot of concern in Europe that they're not necessarily getting a piece of the pie here. And so very much the United States, if you had to compare and contrast both Europe and the United States is the US is leading with carrots and Europe is leading with sticks. And I think that they're gonna have to, to kind of come to some sort of diplomatic consensus behind the scenes. And I think that will probably take a few months to, to play out, but I think this is gonna be something key to watch in 2023. Mike Ryan, you gave us your time. You gave us your expertise. Thank you very much for helping me to gear things up in the think tank. Cliff, really happy to be here. So that's a great start for you. Take care, man. Thank you. Yep. To our viewers, this is a perfect episode to start with. This is a, a, an example of what we're going to do. It arises from a crisis that many of us are praying ends as fast as it possibly can, a terrible war. But we're also looking beyond uh, we're beyond that, we talked about what's going on right now, but what you know, how it's going to have implications ten years from now. That's that's the world that manufacturing is evolving and looking at right now. We're going to talk next week. We're going to talk ten years from now. Every issue is going to um, uh, to go that way. Every discussion is going going that way. Uh, look forward to seeing you at the next episode in the Think Tank. I'm Cliff Waldman. And that's this podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.